Welcome to Out Loud, the Selective Mutism podcast. I'm Chelsea. And I'm Ann, Chelsea's mom. And today we have a special guest. Yeah, we have a long-awaited special guest today. I'm very excited. Uh, today we have Dr. Elisa Schippenblum, who is the president and director of the Selective Mutism Anxiety and Related Disorders Treatment Center, known as the SMART Center, which is located in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. She's also the founder and director of SMA, which is the Selective Mutism Association, and the director of the Selective Mutism Research Institute. She is also a clinical assistant professor of psychology and family medicine at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. Uh, there's more. <laughs> she is a board certified <laughs> physician and is considered one of the world's leading experts in the treatment, research, and understanding of selective mutism. Uh, Chelsea and I actually did an earlier episode, I think it was... Episode 8. Mm -hmm. um, where we discussed um, the evidence-based uh, SCAT, which is so Social Communication Anxiety Treatment that was developed by Dr. E. So um, you've also been featured on TV programs such as 2020, CNN, Inside Edition, Good Morning America. Um, we also saw that you were in Time Magazine, People Magazine, New York Times, and I think there <laughs> were a few others in there. I personally first became aware of Dr. E in 2005. Um, Chelsea was diagnosed with SM and her dad and I actually attended a selective mutism conference which was in Boston. Oh wow. That was our first <laughs> introduction to selective mutism. I mean I was one of the parents who hung around at the end and stood in the long line um, to have my questions answered. And I can't really remember what I asked but I stood there for quite a while for my turn um, and that was I just remember being so impressed that you actually yourself stuck around to ask the parents questions and I was really impressed by that. Um, yeah, it was great. So welcome. Welcome to Out Loud. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this. Did you end up listening to our episode on SCAT? I um, did. You guys did a wonderful <laughs> job. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I hope we did an okay job explaining it. Yeah, you did great. So I thought you know, just to start off, I, I actually know the answer to this, but for our listeners, can you tell us, um, you know, what sparked your interest in selective mutism? Yeah, so I'm a board certified family physician who had a tremendous interest in anxiety disorders in general, which is ironic. And um, as a uh, physician, I was trained to understand the whole person. And I had a little girl at the time who was two and three years of age who didn't stop speaking at home. She was bright, inquisitive, reading books, just the best big sister to her little baby twins and reading a couple years above and et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, the minute she left the house, she just stopped speaking. And I was amazed because she didn't really keep quiet at home. And as teachers and frankly, friends and extended family members were wondering what was going on with her. So I was basically told she had anything and everything from autism to intellectually impaired to some sort of abuse going on or family secret going on. And uh, it was pretty traumatic for me as a physician because I saw such a typically developing child at home mm -hmm. and she just completely shut down. So I I got into this because of my own daughter and the struggles she had and my frustration as a physician where there was very little known out there about this in general. And it was so misunderstood. So it became my 
life's mission and passion to at least try to understand this. But truly, the beginning was trying to help family families. And here I am as a physician struggling. I can't imagine what people that don't have some sort of background were feeling when people were telling them that their child had a severe case of autism or there was some abuse going on or severely intellectually impaired, et cetera, et cetera. I rarely heard just shy. And that's frustrating in itself just because even that isn't what it is, but at least, you know, it's not as, you know, inappropriate as to say something that wasn't true. They had no background to say things, but even professionals were telling me, I took her to professionals and they were telling me severely autistic and intellectually impaired and that um, pretty much she wasn't going to be able to um, function in the world. So here I was as a frustrated parent and has made it my life's mission to try to understand this very misunderstood anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. Now, did you learn or did you hear about selective mutism in med school? Yeah, I actually did. Um, when I was in med school, I remember my pediatric textbook. It was called Nelson's Pediatrics, and it was a big, humongous textbook back then. We didn't have digital. And uh, there was this little tiny paragraph in there somewhere about children and not, and not speaking, and it, it indicated these kids are refusing or choosing not to speak. And I knew that the term selective mutism was actually brought up by a close friend of mine whose daughter ironically also had it. But when I looked it up in Nelson's Pediatrics, it was this child that's refusing or choosing to speak. And I knew that my daughter was not choosing or refusing anything. She truly was Mm -hmm. unable to speak. So that definition in itself was very frustrating to me. And I knew that it didn't make any sense in relation to my child, at least. So do you mind me asking, like, so how did you seek out treatment for her? Was it difficult to find somebody or, I mean, did you do this yourself for your daughter? Or? No, to be honest with you, I felt in my heart that my daughter was, um, had social anxiety. She was very shy. Um, I knew she was very bright. I knew that she didn't have an intellectual impairment or any sort of learning issue, at least not at the ages of three and four, that we could see she was already writing, reading very articulate in her words at a young age. And so I knew developmentally she seemed fine. So I didn't believe she had autism at all. She related incredibly well. I didn't see any difficulty there. So I felt in my heart it was more shyness, especially because um, we have a genetic predisposition to that in our family. So it made a lot of sense. And where the problem came in was when she wasn't able to function within the school environment. So in preschool, she stood there on the side and, Mm -hmm. you know, wasn't functioning. She wasn't able to point to her letters or her numbers. When someone asked her a question, she just looked blankly into space. So it became an issue because socially she wasn't functioning. She wasn't able to interact with peers. When they came over, she was a typical developing uh, preschooler and was just like the boss (laughs) chatting Mm -hmm. away but where the problem came was when she was outside of the home so she had the ability which is I think it's something that's really important as we talk about treatment to be able to understand that if a child is functioning in the home environment but they're not functioning out of the environment that's a whole different ballpark and that's what you have to really pay a close pay close attention to so my child was not functioning in a social setting. Emotionally, she was struggling. She was telling me how hard it was for her to get the words out. The her throat felt like it was closing up. And academically, she wasn't able to show her teachers that she knew anything. Mm-hmm. So socially, emotionally, and I guess academically, she wasn't able to function. 
And to me, that was a flag. And so I started taking her to psychologists locally and was told everything and anything from severe abuse to autism to intellectually impaired to spoiled rotten to family secrets. Um, It was very frustrating. And that's when I began seeking out information by, (laughs) you're going to laugh, but it was web TV back then. And uh, I went on web TV and searched with the the keypad and found um, a website, a gentleman. Do you remember that? I do remember that now. I forgot about that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I found a gentleman in Florida. um, He's no longer with us, but his name was Robert Helton. He had a website and I reached out to him. I wrote him a letter and said, here I am as a physician I'm willing to help in any way get this information out there because I didn't believe what was being told to me was true. So that's how the Selected Mutism group started, where we then became um, the Childhood Anxiety Network. So it was the Selected Mutism group, Childhood Anxiety Network. And we began uh, putting Ask the Docs out there and hopefully, you know, anything we could do to bring awareness to this very misunderstood situation. And Frankly, it was through the years of doing that and then applying my medical knowledge that I started to realize pretty early on that not only were there a few parents and professionals misunderstanding this and clinicians and so forth and so forth, but there were so many, thousands and thousands of people would reach out to us and write to us. And that's how the Selected Mutism Group started, which is now the Selected Mutism Association as a way to not just bring awareness, but to educate about what it was. And that's where you know, I spent the beginnings of my years working through the nonprofit and also on the side, just using, I was in medical, you know, I was a physician, so I was treating, you know, I was working in family medicine, but I was also very always passionate about pediatrics and anxiety. And it's just ironic that I just became so involved in a field now that really was always my interest. I felt as a family physician, the the best way for me to work with individuals was through families and understanding the whole family. So I was trained as an osteopathic physician and as an osteopathic physician, you are trained to understand the whole person. So that if somebody has a symptom such as mutism, you don't focus on the mutism because that's just a symptom. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I often compare it to someone that tells me they have a fever. You could have a fever. Somebody else could have a fever. Why do you have a fever? And so that became my, goal is to figure out why does somebody not speak? Why are they speaking at home? Why, you know, and that became how SCAT developed, frankly. Right, right. Yeah, we love that about the whole SCAT model, because we always say selective mutism is more than not speaking. And that's just like one of the most noticeable symptoms of it. It's Mm -hmm. a whole, yeah. Right. And I don't think a lot of people pick up on that. Like, you know, you think it's just the verbal piece. Right. But it's initiating, it's getting its movement. It's a lot of different things that you don't always notice. Yeah. And even though I I did know that, when I actually read it in preparing for today, it struck me, you know, because I was just thinking like Chelsea, when she was little, you know, she would speak at home and then something would happen and she would freeze and get that blank look. And then I think, you know, it, it just clicked for me that it's not just the speech part, it's also the, she can't communicate mm-hmm. or continue to communicate when she's frozen and blank. Mm-hmm. So it really is both, you know, it's all communication. A- absolutely. And what I learned as time went on, because the term selective mutism is about 
focusing on speaking. And the problem that I have seen over my entire career has been that when you focus on speaking only without understanding factors into maybe why a child develops selective mutism, but if you focus on speaking and they're not able to do it, you're actually reinforcing their inability to speak. You're creating a fear. Mm-hmm. So for me, my biggest thing was why is why is a child not speaking? What What is creating that? They're, cho- they're not choosing that. No one chooses this. There has to be a reason. And over the years, through my clinical experience and then through the research, we've learned reasons as to why individuals weren't speaking. And so once we have that, then we can begin addressing those factors into the treatment. Not And then what I happened is I realized, like you were saying, and is that these children aren't just not speaking. They can't even necessarily point or nod or mm-hmm. and they freeze. So that's where the social communication bridge came in, is that if we can determine the stages of social communication that these individuals are in at home with their parents, with peers, with their extended family members, are they shut down? Are they pointing, nodding? Are they turning to their parent as an intermediate? Are they able to respond? Are they not able to initiate? So you figure this out. And then in school, one-on-one with teachers, with peers, in small groups, in large groups, we assess their academics. And then what are they like in real world settings, in stores, in restaurants? You know, many kids can talk us up a storm in a restaurant or a store, but then the minute somebody asks them, boom, they shut down. And that's kind of how you're describing Chelsea, that that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah, another thing I, I saw, you know, you use the, the, the phrase or whatever, um, lowering the anxiety is not enough, that you then need to teach them communication and so I guess that's actually what the communication bridge is, or it's, can you explain to our listeners what the bridge is? I can yes. Too. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So the social communication bridge is a visual diagram of what I originally created as the stages of social communication. And I feel that it was a work in progress over many, many years. Um, and it's, basically my realization over time that these kids aren't just mute. So this social communication bridge breaks up communication into basically four stages. The first one being stage zero. Stage zero is when a child is either completely shut down or frozen. So that's the way you describe Chelsea when someone asked a question. But also it's a child that's having a full conversation to someone, but ignoring the person asking a question. So I could be having interacting with a parent and child in my office, the child's talking up a storm to the mom or dad, but I'm asking a question or trying to engage. Child acts as if I'm not there. So that child is basically ignoring me. I don't exist. That child is still in stage zero because there's no communication. Stage one begins the communication. That's when a child will, stage 1A, respond. They will point, they will nod, they will gesture, they will write. So if I ask a child, how old are you? And they stare at me and I'm like, come on, tell me how old you are. Are you five? Are you six? Are you 15 or 16? And they stare at me and they shut down. That's stage zero. But if I realize some warm up time is given and so forth, that they can write it and show me, then now they're at stage 1A. So stage 1A is responding non-verbally. Stage 1B is initiating, going up to somebody, tapping them on the shoulder, going up and showing their teacher something or showing the waiter what they want in a restaurant or and so forth. Stage two is what I call the missing link. That's what's missing in treatment. Um, I'm going to get back to that in a second because stage three is verbal. Stage three is when 
you are able to respond, stage 3A. Someone asked a question, how old are you? And you say 10. Initiation is obviously going up and making your needs known verbally. Can I have that? You know, hello, how are you? But children don't just go, Ann and Chelsea, from being nonverbal to verbal very easily. The older they get, the more difficult that is. So you can get a three or four-year-old, given time and warm-up, five-year-old, six-year-old, you know, focusing on areas of interest, asking them questions a certain way, and all of a sudden, boom, they're verbal. But as individuals get older, it doesn't work that way. And I would say that for the majority of individuals, even a five or six-year-old, you have to facilitate communication. So stage two is the missing link. That's when you use, let's say, an intermediary. I might say to you, Chelsea, um, what's your favorite activity to do on the weekends with your family? And you might just kind of look at me and I might say, all right, why don't you write that down? You write it down. And then I might say, I might ask you a choice question. So hanging out with your friends or watching a movie. And I might say, tell mom and I'll prompt you or facilitate that process. You turn to mom and you tell her. Now, some children can't do that at all. But some can, and that becomes an intermediary. What happens over time as I train parents, we train parents, we train teachers to prompt the intermediary with someone they can speak to, then you start hearing their voice and you can start to repeat what they said with that eye contact. So one way, stage two, is using an intermediary. The, you know, Typically that's a parent, a teacher, a friend, a sibling. It could be a puppet for a young child. Mm-hmm. Um, it also could be sounds to words. It could be taking sounds and putting them together to make words. And that's a whole discussion in itself from fun right. use of sounds all the way up to ritualistic sounds. So they will do cat, bat. It's also very behavioral, but it can be very cognitive. And that's where I've developed the ritual sound approach where kids who are very stuck in the nonverbal, they look like professional minds. No matter what you do, how you do it, what you offer them, they do not speak. And typically those kids don't even speak to their, uh, their good friends. They're completely mm-hmm. mute. And then another way at stage two is using an augmentative device. So taping your voice and playing it. But the two most common stage two strategies are using an intermediary and using sounds to words. And through that, you progress into verbal. So it isn't just see where their stage is. It's using strategic strategies how's that yeah. strategic strategies you're using strategies that are very purposeful to moving them up progressing them across the bridge to the next stage now you're often going to bridge down when more people are around or bridge up when less people are around when you're more comfortable you're going to be bridging up when you're less comfortable with the individuals or the setting you're going to be moving down and up so you're going to train parents and you're going to train teachers where the child's baseline stage of communication is and what strategies you use to progress them into obviously verbal. So Mm -hmm. that's what's important. You can't wait. I always say, don't wait, facilitate. We teach parents, don't wait, facilitate. We teach teachers, don't wait, facilitate. Because children, teenagers won't do it on their own without practice and without facilitation. So mm-hmm. if I were to work with a three or four year old, I am purposely, strate- I am strategically progressing them by the way I ask questions, the way I prompt the next stage, the way I use visuals, the way I use choices. But one of the things I said to you, in addition to the social communication bridge, is that the whys of SM are very, very important 
Because if you don't understand the factors into why a child may have developed this or why it's continuing, then it doesn't matter sometimes what strategies you're using because the typical strategies may not work. For example, the whys are critical. I have many kids that um, I've worked with and our team has worked with that have speech and language challenges. They can't put their thoughts together and say them. So if you ask them an open-ended thought-provoking question, they're not able to respond. So I can give them all the you know, stickers or money or incentives to communicate, they can't do it. Or they have processing challenges. Maybe they have delays. Maybe they're highly sensitive and I'm asking them questions in a loud, large, lots of people environment and they're not able to process that environment. So the typical presentation of a shy child is often very, very sensitive in our world. So we have very sensitive individuals. And so if that goes from being highly sensitive to having sensory processing disorder. And we've mm-hmm. done lots of studies with this. So we have to take into consideration, are these kids that are that timid, behaviorally inhibited? Do they have speech and language? Are they bilingual? Do they have learning difficulties like processing challenges? Do they have language delays, learning issues? Like I said, delays in general. Are they highly sensitive? Are parents enabling their lack of communication? Is there too much pressure to speak when Mm -hmm. they're not at the stage to communicate? Are they older now and their behavior is so conditioned? So all of these things, in addition to comorbid other anxieties, play a role in this so-called selective mutism or as I call it social communication anxiety disorder and that's why the whys are critical that's why the bridge is critical and that's why I don't know how to treat to speak maybe you could get the name changed I like that (laughs) I like it too people have recommended situational mutism but that still only focuses on the non-speaking right aspect of a more fully encompassing description Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we and we've worked with, you know, the typical family member, the typical situation with school that will contact us, especially because we get so many from far away, is that they haven't been able to be successful in some of these programs that are focusing on speech when there's so much more than speech going on. And as my colleagues know, it isn't about treating to speak. It's about understanding the whole person. And you know what? It isn't just understanding their stages or whys, it's parenting dynamics. That plays a tremendous role. And especially as children age and how that parenting dynamic plays a role. It's everything. And so many of these children have eating issues, toileting issues, behavioral issues, sleeping issues. It's so much more than not speaking. So we have to address all of these challenges that this family, this child is going through at home in the school environment. And that's why treating the whole person makes the most sense. So after all of that, (laughs) I'm just like, I mean, that's a lot, right? Um, But yet I think, did I read somewhere that most kids are verbal in like three to seven visits? What is your with in your clinic? So I think you probably read that on the website that the average time is three to seven visit. I would say it's definitely less than seven. In the majority of cases, children will progress into speech in the first few visits, if, if not the first visit. And the reason I'm saying that is that when we see a family, we don't just see them sitting in our office. 
all the families that come to us and the schools that work with us, they fill out <laughs> too many have that numerous assessment forms, one of which is the Selected Mutism Comprehensive Diagnostic Questionnaire or the SMCDQ and the Selected Mutism School Evaluation Form. And the SMCDQ is long, it's 24 pages long. But to be honest with you, it gives us such a thorough history into their mutism, their development, um, their medical history. You get to understand family dynamics just by the way parents write, by the way teachers write, how they see it. So before they walk in our office, and then we have other, obviously, sensory forms and other things that we do to, to know what they're like before they walk in. So I think that's a bit of what goes on that allows us to make more progress quicker is that I can already understand and we you know discuss this as a team so before they get there we feel like we have an idea of what they will be like and what those factors are into sm and what their baseline stages of social communication are before they even walk in and that allows us to then pick the strategies and use the strategies you know pretty quickly um and that's what i think allows for progress to occur pretty quick yeah just kind of backing up a little bit i'm just wondering looking at the stages of communication and so how do you handle, you know, a lot of toddlers or whatever with selective mutism will have, I don't know, some people call it a funny voice or um, a baby voice or, you know, what do you tell parents about that? Or whispering. With, you know, trying to get them to whisper louder. A lot of parents are not okay with the voice they're using and they want it to be a normal voice. So how we handle that is right there is a question that's asked to us also all the time. I would say that Children that are old enough not to quote unquote baby talk have found a way to communicate verbally in using this altered voice. And it's baby talk, pig Latin, you know, altered voices. Some will use puppets, some will hide under, some will squeak, some will do all sorts of different variations. I will say, and even for the children that are whispering, which is a little bit different, so I want to get into that in a second. But the children that are using altered voices are dabbing into verbal but there's an attention to it. So it's becoming reinforced and that's their kind of safe way of sneaking into verbal. The best thing you can do for that type of child is not to make a big deal out of it, is to really almost accept it because the more that you feed that, the more they're gonna do it and the more conscious they're gonna be to it. This goes back to the term selected mutism, speak, 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 you know, let's get them to speak. They're focusing so much on speaking that the speaking now becomes an issue itself. That goes back to the whispering. Children who whisper, I would say, is similar in the sense that they're dabbing into verbal. However, I have kids that are what I call selective whisperers. They just go around talking like this all the time. So now they've developed selective whispering. And the reason they're selective whisperers is because there's been so much attention to speech that they found a way to speak, but they're not confident and their voice, their larynx is all tight. And so again, those kids also too much reinforcement. Also, remember I said to you a few minutes ago that many of the children we work with are very sensitive individuals. So I have found that kids will naturally be whispering as a step in the process. What happens with children where there's too much emphasis on speaking too quickly and not accepting quiet speech is that it becomes a reinforced behavior. So whispering is a very natural step in the progression. I don't believe it's a conscious step. It's a natural subconscious step that children might turn to their friends and 
you know, say, give me the yellow crown or the teacher asked a question and the child goes, yes, that's their uncomfortableness coming out, but then progressing across the bridge where the problem exists is not understanding that loud, large, lots of people environments, I call them the three L's, are environments that the children become overwhelmed in. It, it, it causes them to be less communicative and quieter. So the way I always look at it is that the louder the environment, the quieter the child gets. The quieter the environment, the louder the child gets. So understanding those subtle differences in the classroom versus working outside the classroom in a small group, that subtle difference, you might get a child to speak louder. But if we focus too much on the whispering and not understanding why is this child whispering, then again, you're reinforcing it. I will say I do have children that get a bit stuck there. I also say it's always associated with attention to speaking. But you do have to talk to them, especially as they're older, about the cognitive nature, like from a cognitive standpoint. We will have them sit further away from, let's say, their teacher or their peer in school or across from their parent in a restaurant at a table and so forth to help the voice get louder. I would love it to be a more subtle approach where we teach the teachers and parents to naturally do this, especially for a young child, because the more you bring attention to it, the more they do it. I always give the example, it's like a hot stove. Tell the child, don't go near the hot stove and they're curious about it, or a light socket on the wall. Don't go near the light socket. And the child becomes curious. And then all of a sudden they're going around, they're looking at it, they're touching above it and no, don't do it, don't do it. So it's very similar where there's a lot of attention to these altered voices. And do you know something? I have a percentage of children that will talk in altered voices that we will talk again as they get older. Because again, the more, the older they are, the more cognitive it is. The more you can sit down and really work in the trenches with the kids. But the little kids is so much more behavioral and exposure based without that cognitive nature. They can relate to feelings, the children, but they don't see the value in their change of behavior. Okay. So with older children, we will work hard if they're stuck in the whisper mode to unlearn their whispering behavior and unlearn their altered speech. And sometimes it's, you know, just working with tweaking the sounds, working with their, their voice box, so to speak, and telling them we're increasing the distance and actually creating charts where they see themselves increasing their distance. Did you have some, uh, yeah, we'd kind of like to focus a little bit more on the teens because yeah. I really feel like there's not a lot out there for teens. And a lot of it is very focused on, I don't know, it's like, for younger children, so it's hard for teens to feel motivated to participate in therapy or be interested in this at all. Um, but I like from this whole model that it seems like at every age, the child is pretty involved in their own progress. Like you have kids identifying where they're at and tracking their own progress from an early age. So I don't know if we Absolutely. could go with how that looks for older children as well. Yeah. Yes, I think I think one of the things that I tell families and why when we do our communicamp, we have kids from three to 17 and we don't have them in the same group, but the parents are actually in the same area when we're educating. And here's why. The concepts are the same. They're exactly the same. You tweak it based on the child's age, developmental age, their cognitive age and so forth. So the concepts are the same. We respect the bridge. We respect the wise. Obviously, the older the child is, the more aware they are of it. 
We understand a key concept, even for teens, that comfort precedes communication. That unless you have a comfort in an environment, it's difficult to progress. It's also almost impossible to progress in a group. So as a teenager, when a parent is saying, oh, go to your friend's house, well, that might not be comfortable. Or why aren't you answering a question in a large group? You know, if you do that, you're going to get, you know, you'll be able to get a couple bucks and then buy that video game you wanted to do. Well, we have to understand some of these golden rules that comfort precedes communication and progress won't happen in a group. So we have to develop that comfort. And with teens, it's away from the groups, small groups with specific buddies that we're paired with and grouped with doing clubs and activities that aren't necessary in a large group. And that we work on strategies in those smaller away from the group activities and then bridge into larger environments. Something that's really important that I see even among tweens and teens is that the concept of social engagement, the fuel to communication, the term selective mutism is implying that these kids aren't speaking. So we're going to do whatever we can to get them to speak. But what everyone seems, not everyone, but many, many and too many don't realize is that concept of social engagement. Do you know how many teenagers I work with and adults I work with that aren't able to even hand money to a store clerk, that aren't able to write in response to a teacher's question and give them, let's say, a note to tell them something like, I'm, I have to leave early from school, or someone hands them, a, let's say, a, a gift when they come over or cookie to take in school, a teenager having to, um, you know, like I said, give money to somebody. They can't do that. They're not able to even engage. Parents, as time goes on with these teenagers, are doing for them because of the years of learned conditioned behavior that many parents don't realize it in their intent to help. They're actually, many of them, preventing the progress because they are enabling not lack of speech, but lack of social communication. So with teenagers and even the adults we work with, it's amazing how it's an aha moment when I'll ask a question, the child automatically turns to their parent, the parent answers. And it's because of years of being this way. So a, a key aspect is the social engagement where they begin to be what I call you know, on the front line. Something as simple as in front of their parents in a quieter, less, you know, loud environment, in a quieter environment, a smaller environment where they're doing what we call front line, handing, taking. For teenagers, that's important because they're not even doing that. So here we are. How do we work with teens? Are they able to socially engage? Are they able to hand money to a store clerk? Are they able to give a note to their teacher? Are they able to respond if an aunt or an uncle asks a question? Are they even able to point or not? So I have to go back to where are they on the bridge and are they able to engage? And understanding the importance of using parents, even as a teenager, to prompt and facilitate. But here's the biggest thing, demystification. Helping these children and teenagers, these adults, really understand their challenges. I use feelings charts and we use charting throughout. It gives them accountability. It helps demystify it because it's like dealing with the pink elephant in the room. So many families will come to us where they're like, don't tell my child or my teenager that there's anything wrong. Yeah. yeah, I don't see this, right? We see that online a lot. Yeah, exactly. Don't, don't talk about it. Don't, yeah. Don't talk about it, because if you talk about it, then they're going to think something's wrong. 
I don't ever want to think. I think they already know they're having trouble. Yeah. Right. And the way I would look at it is they do so many things that come easy to them. There's so many things that are going well. So this social communication is a challenge. So it's not that something's wrong. It's a challenge right now. Here's where we're at. Let's kind of take it. So from a teenager standpoint, right away, we'll talk about how they feel in different settings. I'll give them, it's not just how do you feel, I don't know, because that's the answer you get. Yeah. How do you feel when this happens? I don't know. Yeah. That's the number one answer, 99 out of 100 times. So in order to help them understand how they feel, I want to give them a rating scale, a numerical value. So a zero to five scale for a teenager is good enough for me because five is really super hard and zero is pretty easy. So how we work with teens or tweens and teens and the older they are, the more cognitive this is, is really starting to dig deep down as to where these challenges are cha- are difficult for them. Now, there are many individuals that don't want to admit there's a difficulty. So how many teenagers don't want any help? Leave me alone. I'm fine. I hate you. I don't want to talk about it. I'm never ever going to talk. So again, the older the child, the older the individual, the more avoidant they become. And I will tell you that that avoidance is a direct correlation to how there's a misunderstanding of that child. Because if the child felt safe, if the child was able to accomplish something, they would start to let their guard down. So how do we work with a resistant teen? We get down on their level of what their understanding is. And and there's lots of ways I could discuss with you of how we do that and different examples, but we have to see where they are in their own understanding and their desire and motivation. So motivation for progress, the motivation to get some help has to be there. If you're 17 years of age and you don't want to have anything to do with this, that's going to be a lot harder than somebody that's 17 that's like, tell me, Dr. E, what can I do? Two totally different kids. But the majority of individuals, yes, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, I interrupted. I was just going to say, so I take it from you, it's mostly parents bringing the teens in. It's not the teen initiating, I need help. Would that be true? It is true. It is the majority of time where parents are seeing this challenge, but there are lots of kids. This is where authoritative, like different types of parenting play a role. The more understanding the the parent is, the more that the parent sees the child in the correct light. And sometimes it's finding the right clinician that can paint this picture the right way and understand the challenges involved, the child is way more open for help. Um, There's a lecture I do, I do it at camp, Communicamp, it's called How Parenting Dynamics, and that could be a separate podcast we can do, but how parenting dynamics affect treatment. And that's a whole discussion in itself. But the way parents are in terms of their parenting style also affects this. And a lot of the parents that we work with are so appreciative to subtleties and even how they speak to their child rather than can you do that, which implies doubt to, hey, let's go do that, which is a direct language to confidence that you're showing your child or to, you know, your teenager. Something that I found interesting in your, one of your, the webinar that we listened to was how at this age, it kind of becomes part of your identity as well as the parent's identity as like this caregiver and they just see their kid as having selective mutism and trying to help them through that, that it becomes so much of 
a part of their life that it's hard to let go of that. I find there's a fine line there between trying to protect your child and do what's right for them. You know, that whole thing about homeschooling a child with selective mutism as a way of protecting them. Um, I don't so know. I, I have a hard time with it. Yeah, and I'm going to give you my thoughts on that because sometimes there's people saying, like, Dr. Reed doesn't believe in homeschooling, and then you start getting some emails about it. But I, I want to preface with I'm not against homeschooling. What I'm against right. is lack of social communication opportunities. So I need to make sure that's understood. I'm not against it. I personally don't feel that for the majority of families we've worked with that have chosen homeschool, that there's enough ways for them to have social communication opportunities. But for those that do create it and we work together to do it and that works for their family, then that works. I'm not going to change their mind, but I'm going to let them know there has to be social communication opportunities. I can't tell you how many families will come to me with a 12 or 13 year old with a child's been homeschooled. The child, you know, does a big group activity once a week or twice a month and sees a couple kids in these big group activities and wants this child to be speaking. Well, there are no social communication opportunities on a regular basis to build social communication relationships, to have relationships. So it goes back to comfort precedes communication. Progress doesn't happen in a group. So if there's no comfort and you're going into a big like auditorium where a bunch of other homeschool children are going, what opportunities are there to build those relationships? And what strategies are we doing to help that child? So we have to really work with homeschool families to create these opportunities. But you said something really, really important. Um, the, the dynamics with parents, I see different types of parents. There's the parents that have um, this identity that they built around themselves. I'm a parent of a child with selective mutism. It's very much my own identity. And as they get older, the child gets older, they continue that identity and it's very difficult for them to let go of that. And so as they don't, they just see themselves as I'm the parent and my child has this problem and it goes on for years and years and years. There's a couple reasons for that. Number one, it does become an identity. I don't know who I am without being that parent of a child that doesn't have a difficulty. But another reason is that they've never been in the proper treatment. So they have seen their child suffer for years upon years. And as a result of the years upon years, these poor kids have become more and more avoidant. And I know as a mother, I'll do anything I can to jump in and help my child not feel pain. But there gets to be a point where if things aren't working and you know that there are treatment programs out there that do work, you've got to back up. If you're with a therapist and you've had I always say no progress in 10 days, then either you're not engaging in the right goals that that therapist is giving you, or there are no goals. In other words, your child should not remain mute. Children make consistent progress. Our research shows it. We see it in our practice every day. Goals need to be tweaked. There needs to be accountability on parents, on children, on teachers, but they make consistent progress. Um, so that's important. So this identity that parents have, also what happens is, and this starts at a young age and goes into, as the child gets older, even into adulthood, this learned helplessness that children develop with their own parents. I can't do this, mom. I know, I know it's hard. Let me do that for you. Or you can do it. I can't do it, mom. Okay, okay, I'll do it for you. As, and of course, I'm exaggerating to a point, but I'm also not. I see this every day in certain families where 
the child doesn't know how to do certain things. They act much younger than their actual chronological developmental age too. They just have become very helpless in their inability to engage socially and to communicate. They become very dependent on their sibling, their parent, to communicate for them. And they've taken a backseat approach. So the thought of if you talk to your neighbor and say hi when she's walking across the driveway, that's an impossibility for a child that has never even engaged with that person, let alone speak to that person. So I think it's important to understand that parents need to look within themselves of what type of parent am I? Am I a parent where, yes, I want help from my child and I'm willing to take those steps, even if those steps are a little bit painful? Because it isn't going to always be easy. It is going to sometimes be a little bit rough and uncomfortable to make that progress. But the goal is, is to find a clinician that you feel comfortable with that in a stepwise approach, you are making progress and that connection is there. It's very important that these children feel very, very much in control. So a big part of SCAP is transferring control to the child where they have a choice in their treatment. They have a choice of how they develop their bridge. It's a choice of what goals they're doing. But as a clinician, I'm giving them the, I'm setting up the boundaries to what they need to do, but they choose what they need to do. Um, And it's also important to really, you know, understand that parenting dynamics. And what those parents are feeling, because I will have families say to me, I don't know what it's like to be a parent without a child with a problem. And that scares me. And so that's the own therapy that particular parent needs to go through on their own. It's almost like I've had families that have worked with us where the child starts to make progress and the parent becomes scared of the progress. It's unbelievable at an extreme end. They actually become scared. So the goal is that the parents have this healthy dynamic, which of course the majority do, but to look within yourself, if you are a parent where you might see some of yourself in that as to what is my role in this too, and working closely with your clinician to deal with your own fears of progress too, and lack thereof. I hope that helps. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It seems natural that it would be more difficult to treat a teen for selective mutism um, not only because of the, there's just so many factors. There's so much, everything is so ingrained and it's been so long. And then you have all the normal teen stuff on top of it. Um, like all the emotions, sometimes depression. Um, I don't know. It's just such a loaded. Uh, I, I, I think everything, I think everything gets very um, exaggerated with a teenager The whys of SM are exaggerated. They're more impactful to the child's life. If they have a learning challenge or a speech and language challenge, it's become part of who they are and you're seeing challenges academically, which affects their overall sense of self and confidence, which can lead to social avoidance and depression and so forth. So that's why for me, it's if that was never addressed and often for those whys of SM, especially children that have learning challenges, if they saw that as separate and not part of the social communication, then that's an issue in itself because they're not addressing that together. So you do, you have these concomitant factors. You have the learning condition behavior where the children have gone so long, they now almost a learned helplessness with their inability to engage socially and communicate. Many of them have lost their friends. Think about Mm -hmm. it when you're four, five, six, seven, eight, it's kind of cute and everyone becomes protective. 
you have a couple good friends that talk for you, they protect you, but you start to get into middle school and upper school and you know what? It ain't cute anymore. Those friends are now engaging in, you know, more social interactions outside of school and they're going to parties. And now this particular individual is, well, what's my role? That friend who I depended on is no longer even there. So now you've got the feelings of what's wrong with me? Where, why am I not accepted? And that comes in in about middle school. So we have to deal with that. I will say that one of the things that we want to really work on is what is what I see when we evaluate is that parenting dynamics. We, we work with the kids on their desire for help. What are your goals for treatment? And so mm-hmm. you have to ask, are they even ready to deal with that? And if they're not, there's teenagers that I need to talk with to say, here's why it would be a value. And let me just give you this example, because I give this example a lot when I speak at conferences and so forth. And when I'm working with an individual family, is if I'm talking to that teenager and she doesn't want any help, leave me alone. I want nothing to do with this. But this particular, um, this particular teenager, she absolutely loves, let's say, horseback riding. She loves horseback riding. Um, that's what she loves. She goes into a store and she needs new, you know, a new helmet, let's say, or new boots. The typical situation is a parent goes in and they buy it and they leave. But if I said to that teenager, in order for you to continue riding, you need to get a new helmet because your helmet's broken. She loves, loves, loves to ride. If I said to the teenager, what would it feel like to have to go and actually ask for your size hat or to indicate that you needed a hat? And often I'd say nine out of 10 times, I get some sort of response. It might be nonverbal in the beginning, but a response like, uh, no, I want a number one, I've never had that opportunity look. But number two, uh, I can't do that look. So now you've had lack of opportunity for, let's say, 16 years. But also, I've never even, like, not only had the opportunity, but no, I can't do it. So here we want her to do it, but she's never had the real opportunity. And number two, like, oh, my God, I can't. That's a five out of five. That's a 10 out of five. You know what I mean? So you have to, to figure out what it is they're interested in. And helping them relate to that challenge on a level that they, or something of interest. So that child needs that helmet to do the thing she loves. Like if one of my, um, I have a teenage boy I worked with recently, he was 13. He loved hockey. Obviously there's, you know, there's no hockey games at this moment in time. However, he needed to go to Will Call to get that, those tickets because dad had to park the car. Well, what does it feel like to go to will call? And even if you just showed a a note that says your last name and what your number of tickets are, that's an impossibility, but you have been dying to go to that hockey game. So we have to find one way things that matter to these kids to help them relate to why it is an advantage for them to get some help. And number two, 90% of the time, if not more, they have been given goals in the past or in therapy in the past, the expectations have been far too great and they weren't able to accomplish it. So what ended up happening over time? Frustration existed with the parents. Frustration existed with the child because I can't do it. Why can't you do it? You need to do it because they weren't at that stage of communication to begin with to do it. So we have to bridge down and maybe for that child, it's going up with the parent and handing a note to what their last name is as a first step. Or maybe it's the parent says, 
Oh, did we have four tickets or six tickets? And the child turns to the parent and says, and reads six tickets. So these have to be active goals that these teenagers work on based on the bridge, but based on the stage that they can accomplish. And for some, it's just simply going to a store Mm -hmm. or going and making a, you know, dialing. Like I had a child earlier, actually today, that we're working on initiating with friends. He's a teenager. Initiating with friends. How do you initiate that video game that you can play? Well, he doesn't. How do you do it? Well, one way is to send a text. Well, it felt like a five out of five to send a text. Well, what if we create the text with the parent, because that's fine, and then that text is written in, and then click send, because he worked out the script ahead of time. And guess what? He not only did it, but he did it while we were in session, and then later on, because it was earlier this morning, I got a message saying, guess what? I did it three times. So it's finding, yeah, that that wasn't even about speaking, was it? But you're building confidence as you're taking them at the level or stage that they can do it and respecting them. So a big piece of SCAT in my mind and what my team has seen is respecting the child's desires, their goals, their wishes. Just because mom wants him to talk to a teacher doesn't mean that's an important goal for the child. But trust me when I tell you, they will eventually speak to their teacher, but they have to attack the goals that they also want to do. So for that 13-year-old boy, playing a video game with his friends is more important than doing a FaceTime, you know, interview with Uncle Jim. Yeah, it's reinforcing and it's more meaningful and functional to that mm-hmm. child. What do you think about IEPs and 504s for kids? Um, Chelsea went to private school, so she never had any. We no. just kind of worked with teachers individually. But I know Chelsea, for her, such a big, important thing was she never wanted to look different than any other children. Right. And so it's interesting because we're talking about teens. Um, the majority of teens don't want to hear about goals or different things that they're working on in school that would bring attention to anything that they do. And I think we need to be really conscious of that because you know what? I have teens that not only take control of their treatment, they'll start their own clubs and email and do all those things because they know that's helping them. Their motivation is a 10 out of 10, help me do what I need to do. They'll tell me how scared they feel and we'll work through it. That particular child is fine with their goals, but they're actively involved in their IEP goals. So every child in my mind that has selective mutism is deserving of at least a 504. So to me, how much is their social communication affecting their ability to learn? How is it affecting their ability to, you know, share, to engage? Because socializing, interacting is important as well. So we have to develop some sort of an accommodation, uh, uh, various accommodations to help them build the social comfort and develop the communication skills, whether it be a 504 where we're doing accommodations and interventions or we need an actual IEP. The more they have whys of SM in terms of learning challenges, speech and language challenges, they more the more impacted and the more their social communication impacts their ability to function. So a shutdown child versus a child that can walk around point, nod and write is going to be they're two different types of kids. So you may need an IEP because of the amount of learning that's affected. The um, they might need pull out groups like speech and language. They um, need more accommodations and interventions because let's say they have to work in a resource room because the big classroom is too overwhelming for them. So the more challenges they have will dictate and how much 
how many services can be done under a 504 versus an IEP. I always joke 504 IEP or SHMA IEP. It really doesn't matter what the name of the plan is. As long as there's an awareness to the child's social communication challenges and then working and facilitation of the strategies needed to help that child become a more confident social communicator. Mm-hmm. So it might need to be under an IEP for some children. It might be under a 504. And I've had plenty that haven't had any plans that have done tremendous. Typically in the schools, especially the public schools, in order to get the small groups to do the strategies, to be able to meet with the social worker or the counselor or the psychologist and so forth, they need that IEP or 504. And I can tell you it's different all over the country. So there right. isn't one way. We'll have kids with IEPs that could have had 504s and kids that, you know, have no plan that are basically more goals in there than an IEP. So I've worked in schools as like a paraprofessional and I've seen many IEPs as a BCBA. Um, I'm just curious, are there typically like a plan to fade the accommodations? I just seems like it could be a way to get kids out of doing presentations or something like if they have an accommodation do they ever have plans to progress like oh absolutely um i have a slide in one of my presentations that says what's wrong with this it's a 504 plan Mm -hmm. and it says exactly chelsea what you just said to me it's don't can submit a written report instead of presenting an oral Mm -hmm. project um don't call on the child ask them only yes, no questions. So the entire 504 is about their lack of social communication progress. So understand that our goal is to understand their baseline stages, the whys, and you know, some kids don't have a lot of whys, but some do, and they have to be uncovered. But understand that baseline stage, start them there, Chelsea, and then do strategies to progress them. So if they, like, for example, I always say there's four ways, Chelsea, to do that. And then one way is a buddy process. You have to understand that a child needs some sort of buddy process, whether you're five or you're 15. Of course, it's harder as kids get older, but it could be an area of an interest, a science club, an after school club. It doesn't really matter. But you need to find a way for this child to connect with other children. And it isn't going to be done in the middle of a classroom where you're all lined up in rows. It's going to happen with setting up these small group opportunities, building one-on-one comfort and communication with teachers and staff members. So having those meetings with them and developing that a buddy process. So it's small groups in the room, small groups out of the room, a buddy process to start to help them understand, understand you know, their comfort level, but help them become comfortable with peers so their humor starts to come out. I mean, typically many of these kids are sitting with flat affects. That's not very inviting. And that's because of the fear that they have, the uncomfortableness. But once you start getting them into small groups, they start to open up a little. Now, what kind of small group? Because I'll always say, oh, I'll read an IEP that says small groups three times a week. You, you know, you ask a choice question use a visual and I go, okay, how, what kind of group is that? How are you asking the question? Who's included in the group? You know what I'm saying? It's not just a yeah. small group. It's who's in the group. How do you ask questions? Where do you ask questions? When do you ask questions? What stage you're at? I mean, is the child just writing or are you prompting the intermediary? So if a child is mute with a teacher, but the child is sitting next to a peer that they have worked hard on building a relationship with. And now that child is verbal with that peer 
I might ask a question and prompt that, that child to say, hey, is it this or that? Tell Rebecca. And she turns and tells Rebecca. Now I repeat without eye contact, especially if I asked her to write it down. Because when she writes something down, that helps her processing. So all of these subtleties that I'm sharing with you go into an accommodation and intervention plan. So the ability to write and show, nonverbal, write and read, yes, that's a basic strategy. But when do you do it? Where do you do it? How do you do it? With who do you do it? All of those have to be answered with your school team. Because if not, it's all over the place like a smorgasbord of strategies. It's... We always, I tell families every time we see them, it's like a GPS. When you came to my office, I said, did you just get in your car and drive aimlessly? You knew you were going to be on a road. You knew there was going to be red lights and green lights. No, you didn't. You went on to your, your phone and you went to maps or Google or however you did it. And you plugged in my address and you went straight for four miles. Then you made a right. Then you made a left and you were on that highway for, you know, six hours, whatever it is. You had a plan to get to just my office. Your child needs a plan to get across, to progress across the bridge. If it's just about comfort alone, lower the anxiety. I'm thinking about a kid, you know, drinking a virgin pina colada on a hammock at a beach. He's going to stay there. He's not going to make the progress because the strategies are not in place. And you cannot wait for the child. Or when I say child, it's teenager too. You can't wait for that individual to make the progress if they don't know how. It's like, yes, I know how to swim, but I need someone to help me, maybe hold me a little in the beginning and guide me and give me, you know, the specific ways to swim before I'm just going to swim. So Mm -hmm. it's the same thing. Like when you're taking driving lessons, you don't just get in a car and drive aimlessly. There's steps to take before you can get your license. There's steps and stages you need to go through and strategies you need to do to cross that bridge. And the goal is we train parents, we train teachers on how to bridge down and how to bridge up. And then and in addition to that, respecting the child and understanding what their interests and goals are. I've had to tell so many families with teenagers, hey, wait, wait, that's your goal. That's not her goal. Her goal is to do X and Y. So maybe there's a way we compromise, but maybe your goal is too great. And it really is. You can't expect her to go into the dentist's office and give her name if she's never been on the front line and handover takeover. So let's kind of bridge down a little to that goal. And then all of a sudden you're talking to the teenager and you're saying, okay, on a scale of zero to five, what would it feel like if when you went to the dentist's office, you were the one that handed the insurance card? So that's not bringing weird attention, right? That's not doing a weird strategy. Someone's got to hand that insurance card. So that, that becomes a goal. And then all of a sudden the teenager's like, okay, that's a two out of five. All right, well, that's certainly not a five out of five. And then we write that down. So a really important thing that I see missing with treatment plans or treatment when we see families is that they were never given concrete, accomplishable goals, charted goals. Charted goals are not meant to be a homework, but in some ways, if you don't do those goals and homework, quote unquote, social communication homework, how are you going to make the progress? You're not. Because there has to be a way that you're accountable to the goals that you need to do to make the progress. And I have learned over and over, as has my team, that when families will do their goals and they will send us their updates, we have this ability for families to send unlimited e-updates, we call them. And they send us their goals. It could be every day. It could be once a week. It could be as much as they want. But then they are accountable to sending us goals, let's say weekly. And then we are able to see them. And that's an accountability that parents have because they have their own goals too. 
and the children, the teenagers have their goals. And if they come back and no goals were filled out, I don't, we don't get mad at them. We say, hey, let's talk about why that didn't happen. And we just talk about it because it isn't always going to be easy. But I would say that the goals that these kids should be accomplishing shouldn't be any harder than a three out of five in the beginning or two out of five. If anything, it's easier to do, to build their confidence. And you're going to pick areas of very strong interest. So if clubs and activities are of interest, why are they being asked to do science club? But if they really have an interest in art club, so it's respecting their own interests. So for the child that loves horseback riding, where do you think she's practicing a lot of her goals at the barn? She's not practicing them out and about. She's making progress at the barn. She's meeting with the, um, her instructor. She's playing some trivia games with her. She's laughing. She's having fun. She's helping another um, fellow teenager groom the uh, horse. They're handing over, taking the different act, the different grooming material. Something as simple as that and handing that is building social communication. That's social engagement. I'm not even talking about talking right now. Mm-hmm. Right. So you can see that it isn't about treating to speak. It's about understanding the child's unique needs. Their picture, I've never seen two kids that are the same, and I've worked with over 6,000 kids. So if you've worked with thousands of kids and you've never seen two that are exactly the same, chances are it's difficult to find that. I think that's a great idea as a parent. Um, Just the tip you were saying, like trying to come up with a a reward chart or something to ask, you know, how scary would it be? Have them rate it. Just a good way to pick goals that every parent can really do at home. Oh, absolutely. And And the parents have their own goals. And the parents... And on the child's goal sheets, they have their ability to rate before they did a goal and what it would feel like after they did a goal. That's very cognitive. It's very CBT based because we're helping them think about what it feels like and accomplish those tasks and working through it. Because what children realize, what adults realize is that when you practice a goal that was given to you by a clinician that understands you and and you're accomplishing that task, it feels like, let's say, a two out of five or a three out of five. But guess what? After they do it and you say to them, what if you had to do it again, what would it feel like? It either stays the same or 90% of the time it gets easier. So Mm -hmm. the key isn't just to do a goal. It's to do it often and create a lot of opportunities. So when we did our research on SCAT and we saw that at each and every visit, there was statistically significant progress. What we found was it was based on implementation by the parents facilitation, and it was based on the teacher implementation. So when we first did it, we saw the child wasn't making progress in school. You know why? No goals were in place. There was no 504, nothing was happening. There were no goals. So the child stayed stagnant. So once we implemented goals that the teachers could work on, very strategic, even if it's five bullet points in the beginning, but we developed, Chelsea, like you're saying, a plan that allowed not just for accommodations, but the interventions or strategies for progress, the child did amazing. And I always say, if you go 10 days without progress, there's a problem and you need to stop and figure out why. And we found in our research that parent facilitation, helping the child, developing those opportunities, creating social opportunities, knowing how to bridge them into communication, just using a verbal intermediary, even in itself as a step, is a step in the progress, setting up those opportunities, creating reward systems are very important. But one of the things you did hear from me as we talked about teenagers versus younger children is that the older the child, the more intrinsic motivation plays a role. The more it has to come from the core and the gut 
first young kids will react really well to stickers and, you know, tokens and, you know, you get extra time on your video game. For older kids, it's so ingrained. They're so avoidant. That's just not going to do it for them. Or if it does, it's not enough. And that's why we need to meet them where they're at in their presentation, in their progress, in their stage to make the progress, to find that thing or things that mean something to them and use that as a stimulus, as an impetus to progress. So as one of my young teenagers, she's obsessed with slime. What do you think she's doing when she has her friends over? They're making all sorts of slime. Now they're doing virtual slime play dates. She's Uh talking up a storm. You can't get her to shut up because (laughs) she knows the recipe for the slime. And rather than tell the recipe, we set it up as she wrote the recipe in steps, one, two, three, four, and five. And during her get together, she's reading the recipe. That's different than teach her how to do slime. Yeah. Yeah. Are you seeing, um, you know, with the COVID-19 and the isolation and all that with, um, I think you were doing it before, but like being a nurse or whatever, now we're now we're allowed to do telehealth. Um, to me, that would make it so much easier for teens maybe to get some treatment. Are you seeing any increase in numbers with teens? So we've always done telehealth. I've always done WebEx and so forth with families because we see so many families that don't, that, that can't ever get to the smart center. So we've right. always done it. We're doing it more now. What we hear are two things. One, I'm at home and I have opportunities to figure out my child and work on goals even at home. And of course we set them up and there's many things they can do at home. And we've been doing that with our families that we normally do follow-ups with. But we also get the family that goes, no, no, I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna wait till they're back in school or out in the real world. I would say to you, that's the wrong attitude because number one, if you've been in treatment with a clinician and you stop it now, you're gonna actually affect rapport You're going to affect the momentum, especially when there are so many things that you can do at home, working virtually and setting up goals. Just like I was telling you about the boy to set up a video game where he put Mm -hmm. the information in the text. That was a goal for him. He did it. Now he's making something as small as that as a tiny goal, but also helping them in their remote schooling to be able to increase their social communication and ways to do that based on their stage with teachers submitting take uh, assignments, being able to create goals for them. So to us, for a family that's never been in treatment, this is the perfect time because you're not distracted with after school activities and your work that you're commuting and back and forth with Mm -hmm. all the kids. This is a time where you can really learn about your child, really work on your parenting strategies because many of these kids, as I told you, don't just have challenges communicating. Mm -hmm. They have many, especially the younger kids, behavioral issues toileting issues, eating issues, sleeping issues. So we can address a lot of these challenges and their avoidance tendencies by setting up opportunities at home and training parents. So it's a Mm -hmm. wonderful time. And we are doing a lot more telehealth now, which is awesome. And hopefully it'll continue in the future for all, you know, individuals. I'm curious, are you ever contacted by other practitioners who have a child with SM and they don't, you know, don't really know what to do? Do they ever reach out to you and... Yeah, I would say about uh, a quarter of the work that I personally do are clinicians that treat children with selective mutism and they just don't know what to do or they've reached a roadblock. And so we set up an actual, we call it a professional consultation. They'll actually submit the case and we review the case and I go through it with them. And then, you know, me, obviously, or one of my um, colleagues, um, will do that. Jennifer Brittingham is uh, one of my main colleagues, especially she works a lot with the school. And so 
at least a quarter to a third or with professionals of my professional time teaching them. Another large percentage of what we do is trainings for schools. So we will either get families we work with where we set up school consultations, we develop IEPs, 504s, and we will do consults on an every four to eight week basis, whether it be an hour or 30 minutes to be able to really tweak their plan. Because Chelsea, as you said, you're giving them accommodations, but unless you tweak the interventions, you can't just give them a roadmap that goes forever. You've got to give them a roadmap that takes them to a point, but then you tweak it because as Mm -hmm. children make progress, their presentation changes. So what might've worked in the beginning now it's got to be tweaked. And also it may not be the ideal strategy at all because they are now more accountable. And now I can give them a more proactive approach rather than a, you know, maybe less of a proactive approach. So I think what I'm saying is that treatment changes as children move along across the bridge, but we will do consults with schools where we don't even know the, the student, but the school will hire us to do school consultations with a case they have. And we'll do the same thing as we do with professional consultations, case conceptualization and help them with IEPs and uh, developing accommodations, interventions. And really, and one of the things that I would say that stands out in all these cases is that they have not understood the connection between the whys of SM and they haven't realized that it's not about just speaking, that Mm -hmm. they think it's about not speaking and all the goals are speaking based. And this poor kid, you know, is 15 years old and completely not engaged with peers and falling behind or behind academically is now becoming depressed. I mean, there's definitely an association with that. Well, this has been, um, I don't know. I almost, I almost felt overwhelmed because it's just such a holistic, there's, so many little intricacies you I know, know it was not just the speech um and even though i knew that there's i, I just wish you could um clone yourself and you know teach there's just so many we have so many people that just don't have the right therapist you know it just seems like they're not making progress and they're losing hope at yes. this teen age and the teen is starting to feel rejected by peers and just yeah and they end up depressed so- So one of the things that we do offer families, whether they consult with us or not, is we offer books, we have webinars. Right now we have 20 different groups on our website that are, you know, groups for social communication, like play dates or virtual get togethers for teens. We have groups on depression and anxiety and so forth that are led by, you know, master level clinicians and so forth. And families and children or teenagers are going to some of these groups because even now during COVID, it's very difficult to get treatment, but also have opportunities to be able to, you know, interact with others. So, and that's the reason we do these community camps too. We do these three-day intensive camps where families fly in. It's all-day parent education and support. And, and then the children are working with their counselors with other kids in a school-like setting and making progress. So they see themselves there, but we do evaluations, or at least we have interviews with them if that's the route they choose before they even get to camp so that we know who they are and we can develop the strategies for them at camp so that they make progress. And then what happens is that translates to school, especially as parents have learned and schools get educated with that as well. And uh, I would love to invite you guys to speak at one of our camps because we have a parent panel and a child panel. You could get on by web and talk to them, especially because you get the SM pass. I recommend that they go to selective mutism center.org okay. or communicamp.org. And you'll find this interesting because we treat the whole child and so many of the families 
that come to us have either the child themselves or the adult that comes to us for treatment for selective mutism have other challenges, other mental health challenges. We now have an entire division of the SMART Center called SMART Center Counseling, where we do full assessments and we do treatment for other disorders. So we will do assessments and treatment for autism, depression, ADHD, dyslexia, you name it. Um, and so it isn't about just SM for us because we see these family members because, you know, that have other challenges, but also the kids with SM as, you know, we'll have individuals come to us that have these other challenges. So we started this other division not so long ago as a way to have almost like a full service center. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yes. Uh, let me know if you have other questions. I love doing this. And also, um, you know, any questions that come up from this or clarification, I'm happy to connect with you guys or another one in the future. Okay. okay. Thank, well, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thanks for your time. Bye. Appreciate Bye. it. Hi, guys. It's Chelsea. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Out Loud, the Selective Mutism podcast. I just wanted to drop in and say happy Mother's Day to all the moms who are listening out there, who continue to fight and advocate for your children. I also wanted to say happy Mother's Day to Dr. Elisa Shippenblum. Thank you for coming on and giving us so much useful information. And to my own mom for going above and beyond to help me. Thank you for listening.